0: Today's scripture reading is taken from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law." Faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires.
1: Sam, for reading God's word. Good to see all of you here, let's dive in together and pray that God will show us Christ as we come to His word. I want to begin with a question for all of us to think about. It's a multiple choice. So there are two options. Is the Christian life about keeping rules or rejecting them? Is the Christian life about keeping rules or rejecting them? Are you a rule keeper or are you a rule rejecter? Rule keepers think it's really important to keep standards, traditions, customs, practices, you know, ways of doing things. To be a good person or to be a good Christian, we must do this and, and not do that. Right? Rule, keepers. rule rejecters, on the other hand, you know, sometimes react against rule keepers. And, and rule, keep, rule rejecters say that you know, we, we should be free from these things, right? You know, doesn't Jesus love us already? You know, we should be free from standards, traditions, ways of doing things. We should be free to, to kind of live as we like. So we're back at the question that we started with you know, which is the right? approach to the Christian life? Are we, rule, are we rule keepers or are we rule rejecters? How should we live as followers of Jesus? Uh, today we find ourselves in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, so we're taking a bit of a break from Acts today and Paul deals with this question right here in his epistle to the Galatians. Now, just to be a background on Galatians, it's written to a church that's mainly Gentile or non-Jews. Now, these non-Jews, Gentiles, had, had become Christians when Paul came and preached the gospel to them. The church was planted, but then Paul left. and After Paul left, false teachers infiltrated the church, and these false teachers were Jews like Paul, but the message that they brought was quite a different one. Paul calls it a, a different gospel in chapter 1. The false teachers thought that it wasn't enough for the Gentiles to put their faith in Jesus if they wanted to be accepted by God and become a part of God's people. It's not enough. If they really wanted to be accepted by God, they must be circumcised. They, they must obey the law, i.e. The, the Jewish law, the Old Testament, in order to be accepted by God. In other words, the Gentiles needed to become Jews first if they were to be accepted by God and become a part of Of God's people. How does Paul respond? How does Paul speak into a situation like this? He says in chapter 1: if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Paul doesn't believe in PR, he doesn't mince his words. If, if someone preaches a, a different gospel, which Paul says, no, no, there's no different gospel, there's just false gospels. If someone preaches a false gospel, let him be cursed by God. And then Paul goes on to say, as he writes Galatians, you know, we are saved by faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. We are not justified, you know, that is we're not declared righteous in God's sight, by works of the law. Works of the law do not gain us righteousness. But Paul says, we gain righteousness through faith alone in Jesus Christ. We're not saved by our works. Ah, but then this raises the question, does this mean that, you know, look, if I'm not saved by my works, does this mean that I have now liberty and license to live, as, to live however as I like? Does this give me license to live as I please? Because, hey, look, I, I know I'm not saved by my works, so therefore, you know, I'm free to live as I please. How should we live as followers of Jesus? Today we're going to conclude our mini-series on the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us in Galatians, essentially, that the Christian life is actually not about rule-keeping, you know, but, but neither is it about rule-rejecting. So the two options that I gave us at the beginning, both are, both are actually false and wrong options. Think about the Christian life. Paul shows us a much better way of living the Christian life in Galatians. And the answer to how we live the Christian life is not a method, it's not a formula, it's not some special secret that if you pay me $50, I'll tell you. You It's not any of those things. The answer to how to live the Christian life is actually a person. God Himself, uh, specifically, it's the person of the Holy Spirit. This is the truly Christian way to live, Paul tells us. the way of the Spirit of God. Paul says we need the Spirit. We need the Spirit in order to live a life that is pleasing to God. But How do we have the Spirit in the first place? How do we receive the Spirit in the first place? It's not by our own works. Paul tells us that the Spirit is not given to the deserving. The Spirit is not given to uh, people who have earned their right to receive the Spirit. Rather, The Spirit is given to the believing, those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are given the Spirit of God. We receive the Spirit by faith, just as we put our faith in the Son of God. And having received the the gift of the Spirit from God, Paul says we are to walk by the Spirit. And that's a command. We're actually not commanded to receive the Spirit, because that's a gift. But we're commanded, having received the Spirit, to walk, to live by the Spirit, to live according to the work of the Spirit in our lives. So even though we're saved by faith alone, the Christian life doesn't run on autopilot. But we have the responsibility, and it's a mark of our obedience that we walk by the Spirit. I recently watched a a documentary about climbing Mount Everest. And Mount Everest, tallest mountain in the world obviously not an easy climb. So there's are Sherpas who live around the, the mountain. And these Sherpas, what they do every climbing season is that they, they go onto this place, this glacier, called the Khumbu Ice Fall. Uh, you know, those of you who like mountains, you know about this. The Kumbu Ice Fall is the most treacherous part of the Everest Climb from the Nepal side. So many, many, you know, every year, climbers die on the Khumbu Ice Fall because of crevasses. So what these Sherpas do, they, the nickname for them is they're called Ice Doctors. That's the nickname for them. So the Sherpas or Ice Doctors, they go onto the Kumbu Icefall and they prepare the route for climbers. So before climbing season starts, they're all busy preparing the route that these climbing parties will take across the Kumbu Falls. So it's really, I mean, it's really dramatic. You see them laying down ladders over wide crevasses. They're putting like fixed lines all along the route so that it's safer for all the climbing parties as they pass through. And you know, if, if you're a climber that, that climbs Everest, you know that it's wise to follow the route set up by these ice doctors beforehand. That, that's a really good picture of walking by the Spirit. We, we, we face a treacherous route as we navigate the Christian life, as we long to be home with God. The Spirit is the one who has prepared the way. The Spirit is the one who shows us how we should walk, where we should walk, where, what is safe, what is not. And, and Paul says, we, therefore, we walk by the Spirit. Because on either side, we face danger and prevail, just like a crevice. Instead, Paul says in verse 25 of our passage, he calls us to keep in step with the Spirit, which really is a, a military term. It means to, to close ranks, to not step out of line. With the spirit, I mean, some of you watch the national day parade. The part where the, the military contingents coming through, you know, and they're all in formation. That that's the picture that Paul Paul gives us of keeping in step with the keeping in step with the spirit. Don't step out of line. Now I re- recognize that you know these terms, walking by the spirit, keeping in step with the spirit. You know, they, they still sound a lot like Christian jargon, right? You know, maybe they, they sound a bit spiritual to us. Like, wow, you know, that, that sounds really great. But what does it actually look like? Right? Do we have examples of what that actually looks like to walk by the Spirit and to keep in step with the Spirit? Let me give us a couple of examples from you know, maybe maybe life. Some of you might uh, resonate with some of these examples. Example number one: We be facing a trial or temptation, but we're reminded of God's love for us. A fresh, fresh encouragement from knowing that we have a heavenly Father, that we are His beloved children. This helps us to draw near to God and to pray, Abba, Father. Now this is walking by the Spirit. Why? Because He is the Spirit of adoption, who assures us of God's love for us and of our status as His children. You ever had that? You ever had that experience when, when you just? Freshly assured that, yes, you are my Heavenly Father God. I, I am your child and I can come to you. That's walking by the Spirit. Second example, we're having a really stressful day. And we're taking it out on our spouse. We're taking it out on our children, our friends, our colleagues. You know, but, but somehow we're, we're prompted to read Scripture. Okay, you know, I've got to do my quiet time, so I'm just going to read the Bible. So we spent a few minutes reading. And thinking about several verses. And as we read, God's Word seems to press on our hearts. You know, even if it's just a few verses. God's Word seems to press on our hearts more and more. And as we read, we're convicted of sin. As we read, we're convicted of, gosh, I've not honoured God in the way I've treated the people around me. I've kind of vented my frustrations. And as we read God's Word, we're, we're convicted to repent of our anger, of our frustration of our impatience. And at the same time, we're convicted to draw near to God, to seek His strength, to seek His comfort. That's walking by the Spirit. He's walking by the Spirit. Why? Because He is the Spirit of truth. He teaches us God's Word. Not just teaching us intellectually, but pressing the word of God onto our hearts. Yes. Example number three. We'll be feeling discouraged and far from God. You know, maybe, maybe we're here, but we're really not too keen to be here because we feel far from God and we feel like a hypocrite every time we show up for church. Is that you? I know I feel that way sometimes. You know, then, then maybe a Christian brother or sister comes along and this Christian brother or sister says to us, hey, how are you doing? Look a bit down. How can I pray for you? What's going on in your life? How can I encourage you? And we start to share our burdens with this brother or sister. And as we do so, we begin to feel the weight lift. We sense God's encouragement. And gradually, we desire to draw near to God as we are encouraged. By this brother or sister this is walking by the spirit. why because the spirit is our helper and oftentimes the spirit helps us through the people of God. the Spirit creates the people of God and the Spirit uses the people of God to help the people of God so these are just some examples you know, they're not exhaustive but these are some examples to give us a, a sense of how, what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. Jesus has saved us, but He hasn't left us alone to figure out how we should live. He's given us His Spirit to make us more and more like Jesus. How does the Spirit do that? Let's look at the second Roman num- numeral number two. How does the Spirit make us more like Jesus? Two points for the rest of the sermon. Number one, the Spirit opposes sin. Paul talks about this in verses sixteen to twenty-one. Now, verse seventeen says that the flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other. Now, flesh here refers to our fallen, sinful nature. Now, before we believed in Jesus, we lived. Scripture tells us according to the flesh, according to our old man, according to our fallen, sinful nature. And we did whatever we wanted, whatever was right in our own eyes. And we had no place for God in our lives. And the Bible calls this sin. Sin is not just kind of doing bad things. Sin is living in rebellion against God. Kind of refusing to worship Him or to give thanks to Him. Kind of living life apart from Him. You know, living life according to the flesh, basically. That's sin. But God graciously sent His Son to save rebels like us. And Jesus perfectly obeyed God and he willingly died on the cross so that whoever believes in him can be forgiven. And Jesus rose from the dead to give new life to those who trust in him, to those of us who cry out to him for help. God, I am a sinner. Forgive me through your son. Receive me because of what Jesus has done. To those of us who cry out to God for help like that, God promises to save and he saves us through his son. Gives us new life, and this new life is given to us through the Holy Spirit. We believe in Jesus, God gives us the Spirit. The Spirit dwells and lives in us. The Spirit removes our sinful nature from the throne of our hearts. The the Spirit enacts new management, as it were. Takes over. The Spirit gives us new hearts. New hearts that are loyal to King Jesus. That's why we can say that the Christian life, although it's not about rule-keeping, the Christian life is not lawless either. when when, When someone becomes a Christian and someone receives the Spirit, that this person will regard God's Word as good, God's commands as a delight, His law as a good thing. So this person will begin to live in dependence on God. This person will begin to live with a delight in following God and taking heed to God's Word. But this is what the Spirit does, giving us a new heart, writing God's law on our hearts so that we desire to follow Him, and live for Him. However, even though we are followers of Jesus, the influence of our sinful nature still remains. We still struggle with sin because we haven't been perfected or glorified with God. We still live in a fallen world, and in this present evil age, we still struggle with sin. So even though sin no longer rules over God's people, sin still remains dangerous to God's people. I I liken sin to a terrorist. You know, just like a terrorist, sin is not in control, but sin will do what it can to distract us Lead us away from following Jesus. We have to be watchful. By God's grace, we don't fight alone. As we sing in Mighty Fortress is Our God, we sing these words, don't we? We're not the right man on our side. Our striving would be losing. I thank God that we have the Spirit who empowers us to oppose sin and put sin to death. That the Spirit empowers us to turn away from the works of the flesh. And according to our passage in verses 19 to 21, the, the works of the flesh kind of show themselves in these four areas. You know, these are just you know, these are indicative, they're not kind of exhaustive. You know, we see the works of the flesh in other areas as well. But these are just kind of four common areas in which we see the works of the flesh. First, in our sexuality. Paul talks about sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and thinking about sexual sin. What does this include? Adultery? Sex outside of marriage? Lustful thoughts? Pornography? I think any, Paul says any expression of sexuality that is not according to God's good purposes for sex, which is a gift to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Any expression of sexuality outside of God's purpose is sin. Paul says this, these are the works of the flesh. This is what sin looks like in sexuality. And then Paul goes on to talk about another area. He talks about worship as a place where we display the works of the flesh. He talks about idolatry and sorcery. Now I know many of us, we don't struggle with the need to bow down to a graven image. Maybe some of us do, but I think maybe most of us don't. Right? We think of idolatry in that sense. You know, I don't, I don't bow down to any graven image. I left that a long time ago. I'm kind of safe. But do we love things or do we love people more than we love God? Do we trust in things or do we trust in people more than we trust in God? Are, are we trying to find our source of well being and approval from things? So even though we might not bow down to a graven image, we still struggle with idolatry. Every time we give our affection, our devotion to something or someone more than we are devoted to God, that is a form of idolatry. Every time we trust in something more than we trust in God, that is a form of idolatry. The third area where where Paul talks about the works of the flesh is our relationships. And, you know, it's interesting. You know, if you look at this list of sins, when it comes to relationships, Paul has the longest list. It begins with enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. The longest list of sins that Paul talks about here in this passage. So think about it. Do we struggle with relational sins? In, instead of loving others, we use them for our own benefit. We, we see people as kind of tools to be used to either get this or get that. And, and when they, they, they don't give us what we want, what happens? Exactly those sins that you see there. Anger, jealousy, impatience, Frustration sins. We, we take revenge on people, through those sins. Fourth area, pleasure. Paul mentions drunkenness and orgies. And this doesn't just refer to alcohol, although it includes alcohol as well. But just think about, you know, do we pursue pleasure apart from God? You know, do, we, do we try to find pleasure without God? Now here, Paul talks about finding pleasure in drink, drunkenness. Finding pleasure in food, uh, indulgence, so orgies. But, but the question for us, you know, do we try to find pleasure apart from God? Kind of, Do we have sort of secret pleasures that we kind of keep hidden? Or even legitimate things that, that we kind of give ourselves to in the place of God? You know, in some countries, sports is a really big thing. And, and sports almost becomes a form of religion where people worship sports teams. Where, where like, in the US, they have, like, Monday Night Football. And in the UK, they have, you know, the Premier League. So people, the people give all their devotion and their loyalty to sports teams. Almost like, apart from God. Is that us? Do we, do we seek pleasure in alcohol, in food, in, in leisure, in entertainment? Sports, no reference to God. So as we think about these sins, you know, it, sometimes it's tempting to read a list like this and to kind of gloss over really quickly. You kind of come to a list like this, and then, yeah, you know, that, that, that's not me. I'm, I'm kind of safe from any of these sins mentioned here. But, but I want us to kind of just pause and think about, think about each one of these. Where, where do we see ourselves in this list? That's a serious question. Where, where do you see yourself in this list? Where do I see myself in this list? Are, are we really free from any sin? Are we completely blameless? As we consider a list like this, what 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 sins do what sins do we still struggle with? What sins do we still struggle with? Struggle is a part of the normal. Christian life. Now if we if we do not struggle with sin at all, then one of two things is true. We're either perfected in glory, or our hearts have become hardened and we are actually unrepentant. So so it's worth thinking about this really carefully. Honest before God, God, I I really struggle with this. God, I struggle with anger. I struggle with impatience. I struggle with envy, I struggle with lust, I struggle with idolatry, I'm giving my devotion to other things, to other people. What what do we wrestle with? The good news is that the spirit in us opposes the flesh. And because the spirit in us opposes the flesh, we, we should expect conflict and struggle in our Christian lives. Repentance and faith are not one-off in the Christian life. The the Christian life is actually a lifestyle of continual repentance and a lifestyle of continual faith in Jesus Christ. The the Spirit moves us to continually turn away from sin and to continually turn to God through Jesus Christ. And the Spirit uses conflict between the Spirit and the flesh to grow us in Christ-likeness. So I want to encourage us as well. Don't be discouraged as we struggle against sin. Struggling is a sign that we have new life. You know, dead men don't struggle. But, but if we have the Spirit in us, the Spirit moves us to fight against sin and that fight against sin involves conflict. That fight against sin involves discomfort. That fight against sin involves struggle. And sometimes sorrow sin. So don't be discouraged when we struggle. The, the, the Spirit in us makes us care about holiness. Verse 24 says that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. And Jesus has already defeated sin for us and we, we fight on the winning side. I mean, that, that's good news of the Gospel. For those who struggle, we fight on the winning side. The Spirit in us is the guarantee that we have won through Jesus Christ as we fight. What does this mean for us as a church? Individually, we struggle against sin. What does this mean for us as a church? You know, if, if struggling with sin is a part of the normal Christian life, then, then you and I need to be prepared for conversations where we talk about sin in our lives. You and I need to be prepared that this is part of normal community. That we begin to share our sin struggles with one another. That we begin to pray for one another amidst our struggles. That we begin to encourage one another amidst our struggles. Because this is normal in Christian life. It means that we as a church should be a safe community. A safe community where we can seek real accountability from one another a safe community where we can share about our burdens with one another. So that when someone shares his or her struggle with us, we, we don't respond with harshness, you know, we don't respond with a judgmental spirit, and we shouldn't gossip about the person. But instead, we, we respond with empathy. We respond with love. With gentleness. Why? Because we are fellow strugglers too know what it means to struggle with sin. The church should be an encouraging community where we are continually exhorting one another to turn away from sin and to turn to Christ again, again, again. I think that's why Paul writes these words in chapter 6. You know, the familiar passage in chapter 6 verse 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, how we know? Because we are confessing our sins. Anyone is caught in any transgression. You who are spiritual, i.e. you who have spirit, restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch, not not just on one another, but keep watch on yourselves. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul is very realistic, right? Paul recognizes that, hey, we all struggle with sin. But people who struggle with sin and who know that they struggle with sin, those people are the best equipped to restore others when others fall into sin. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When obey Christ, this is what it looks like in. Now, this, this kind of community, does it sound too good to be true? Really, a safe community, encouraging community where we truly bear one another's burdens. Sound too good to be true? Maybe some of us have tried. Some of us have been burnt. We shared our sin struggles with someone else. Maybe some of us have become skeptical, cynical about the church, about the community. Maybe some of us have just given up trying. Again, I want to exhort and encourage us. You know, God is calling us, the church, every single one of us, to live together in this way. And, and God is not simply giving us a nice ideal that we kind of look and say, "Oh, that's that's really nice," but oh, we're over here. No, no, God is giving us this picture of the normal Christian life, and He's calling us obedience because this is what the normal Christian life looks like. This is what the normal Christian How can we create this kind of community you know, where it's safe, where it's encouraging, where we struggle with sin, against sin together, encouraging one another? How can we create this kind of community? The good news is that we can't. None of us can. But God can. That's why God says, walk by the Spirit, depend on His power. God's Spirit is the one who bears this kind of fruit in our lives. What kind of fruit? It goes on, Paul goes on to say the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The, the very qualities that are necessary in order for us to be this kind of community that God is calling us to. It, it's the work of the Spirit. It's not, it's not our efforts in making our community better per se. But it's really the work of the Spirit in us, moving us to, prepare, to bear this kind of fruit five key truths about the fruit of the Spirit. Five things to think about. Number one, the fruit is evidence of true spiritual life. You know, maybe some of you are botanists or arborists. How can you tell if a tree is alive? Right? How can you tell if a tree is alive and healthy? You look for Signs of life, right? What are signs of life? Leaves. Uh, best sign of life is what? Fruit, right? Fruit is a sign of life. You know, if someone asks you, why does a fruit tree bear good fruit? Or why does a fruit tree bear fruit? Your reply would be, it's a fruit tree. It's what it does. By definition, a fruit tree will bear fruit. You don't have to tell a fruit tree to bear fruit. It does so because it's a fruit tree. I think that's, that's what Paul is getting at in this passage. Uh, If if we are truly alive, if we have the Spirit who makes us alive, we will naturally bear fruit. Fruit is evidence of true spiritual life. As Jesus says in the Gospels, each tree is known by its own fruit. How can you tell if a tree is a durian tree? How can you tell if a tree is a durian tree? What do you expect to find on a durian tree? Come on, it's not, it's not, it's not very hard. You know. Durians, right? You, you look at a durian tree, you expect to find durians. How can you tell if someone is spiritual? How can you tell if someone knows Jesus and has the Spirit? How can you tell? You look for the fruit of the Spirit. It's a sign of life. It's a sign of belonging that, hey, you know, if, 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 I'm, if I have these qualities in my life... That's how I know that I'm alive in Christ. That's how I know that I have the Spirit. So knowing, you know, knowing that we have the Spirit is not some mystical thing, but, but it's shown in these qualities in our life. These, these, show, these qualities show that we have a living relationship with Jesus, the true vine. As Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So, fruit is evidence of true spiritual life. Uh, second, second kind of key truth about the fruit fruit comes from the Spirit, right? Fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is the source of spiritual life and fruit. You know, Paul says, We who are, are led by the Spirit are not under the law. And he says in verse 23, Against such things there is no law. And what, what Paul means is that we are unable to produce spiritual fruit ourselves, you know, whether by keeping the rules. Or by rejecting them. Fruit is the result of the Spirit's work in us, entirely by the grace of God. That's good news, right? To to poor, helpless sinners like us, it's entirely by the grace of God that God bears fruit in our lives. A couple of things, a couple of applications from this. One is that we have no excuse. You know, some people say things like, uh, uh, you know, sometimes I'm in counseling situations and the person says, oh, I'm just like that, don't try to change me. I just have a short fuse. Don't try to change me. That's just my personality. But, but this passage tells us that if, if the fruit of the Spirit is God's grace in our lives, we have no excuse. We can't blame our personality. We can't blame our upbringing. We can't blame our parents, our children, our colleagues. We can't blame our disposition because we trust that God's grace penetrates our hearts and overturns our lives, transforms us completely from the inside out. We have no excuse. To not become more and more like Christ, but it's also an encouragement, you know. Uh, you know, on the way here, yeah. You know, I as a parent, I had some, you know, kind of difficulty with my with my two boys. You know, that, that was tough for me as a parent, right? It's like, ah, oh. get to church, and you're hoping to kind of prepare your hearts for church, and you come to church, you're like, ah, oh. <laughs> you know, just had this like shouting match with with the kids. You know, but but knowing that it's the work of the Spirit is really encouraging as a parent, because I know that. You know, it's not me trying to manip- manipulate my children into obedience. It's not about me trying to put more rules into their lives so that they can kind of toe the line more. But really, it's about me showing them grace. It's, it's about me pointing them to the only source of life, Christ and His Spirit. So maybe I begin to parent a bit differently as well. You know, I, I no longer resort to threats and blackmail, or bribery in order to kind of secure a certain behaviour. But I begin to, to model grace to them. I begin to, to first show them that, hey, Daddy needs Jesus too. Daddy's also a sinner. And pray, please forgive Daddy for shouting at you. you know? And I begin to show them grace and hopefully begin to point them to the source of grace, Jesus Christ, because He alone is able to change the hearts of our children. So, so if you are a parent and you struggle you know, with, with your kids, in whatever way. You know, take comfort that the Spirit is the source of life. He is the source of life for your children as well. Trust Him. You know, ask Him, cry out to Him, God, help me. You know, help, help change the heart of my child so that He loves you and He follows you. you know, that, that's our only hope as God's people. Third, fruit, uh, sorry, third truth. The, the fruit is cultivated in our relationships. You know, look at this list all of them focus on how we relate to other people. You notice that about the, the qualities? You know, what, what does this tell us? God uses our relationships with one another to make us more like Jesus, and this happens especially when we irritate one another, when we bump up against one another, when we step on one another's toes. Right? Look at the list. You know, if everything's always fine and perfect, when do we need to be patient? If everything is always fine and perfect, when do we need to be gentle? When do we need to be loving? When do we need to be joyful even as we are sinned against? Now, this this list of qualities reminds us that it's in the bump of relationships, it's in the conflict of relationships. That's when God grows us in the fruit of the Spirit. So next time someone sins against you or offends you, I mean, it's hard. But thank God. God, help me to learn something from this. You know, God, help me to learn to be patient. You know, God, help me to endure. God, help me to still respond with love and gentleness, even as I'm sinned against. You know, for example, I, I know a friend, a you know, really godly brother. Uh, he served as an elder in, in one of the churches that I used to attend. A you know, really godly brother got married later in life. He told me after he got married, you know, I used to think I was a patient person, and then I got married. <laughs> Now I've spoken to some dear brothers, asked them, you know, after the first year of marriage, hey, how's marriage? And a lot of them tell me, well, oh, it's very sanctifying. <laughs> very sanctifying. Why? Because you're in the bump of a relationship. And as you get closer and closer to someone, you bump up against that person more and more. You, you see the need to love, to be gentle, to have joy more and more. And that's how God grows us in the fruit of the Spirit. Conversely, the health of our relationships say a lot about whether we are truly following Jesus, so it's a good question to ask ourselves you know, how is the health of our relationships? What do, what do our relationships say about how we're following Jesus? you know Paul has to address relational issues in Galatians you know in Galatians what's happening is that they, they reject the gospel and when they reject the gospel what happens it, it the effects spill over into their relationships. and I don't know whether you've ever noticed this about Galatians. Look at, look at uh, chapter 5, verse 15. Paul says, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Verse 26, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And every time we, we drift away from the gospel, our relationships suffer. But Paul tells us here, spiritual fruit fosters deep spiritual fellowship. And the lack of spiritual fellowship indicates a lack of spiritual fruit. How many fruit of the Spirit are there? It's truth number four. How many fruit of the Spirit are there? How many? How many fruit of the Spirit? Anyone? Anyone? That's right. One. You notice that? It's singular, right? It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit, singular of the Spirit. Why? I mean, why is it singular? Because all these nine qualities go together. You know, it's not a buffet, like, hey, I like love. Uh, I don't know so much about patience, but I really like love. You know? So it's not a buffet for us to pick from, but it's a set meal. You know, it's, it's one complete set. Why? Because truth number five, because the fruit reflects the character of Christ. This is why all the qualities go together because together, all these qualities show us, hey, this is what Jesus looks like. This is what Jesus is like. So Christ's likeness is like a, a, a beautiful diamond and these qualities are the nine different facets of that one beautiful diamond. So Paul is holding up Christ to us in, this, in these verses and he says, hey, you want to know Christ this is what he looks like? Love joy, peace, patience, and and so on. Paul says this is what Christ looks like in His glory. That's why they all go together as the fruit singular of the Spirit. All these qualities point to Jesus, especially what He has done for us through the Gospel. So just in, in, in closing, I want to just walk us through these qualities and help us to see how they reflect Christ. And I pray that the Spirit would, uh, would really help us to see Christ as we think about these qualities and think about how our lives can more and more reflect Christ, especially in our relationships with one another. Love. You know, love is mentioned first. Why? Because God is love. Right? It's such a fundamental characteristic of God. And Scripture reminds us that Jesus loved us while we were still sinners. He loved us by laying down His life for us. And we are to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Joy. Jesus for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He rejoiced to do the Father's will and looked forward with joy to the hope of glory. Even though the path to glory went through the suffering of the cross. And the Spirit helps us to rejoice in God with the same joy that Christ had so that we obey God out of delight, not merely duty. The Spirit helps us to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ, even amidst trials, even amidst grief and loss. Peace. By dying for our sins, Jesus made peace between God and us. And Jesus also made peace between us and united us as His people. And because Jesus is our peace the peace of God now guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We can have peace from worry and from fears and we can also be peacemakers in our relationships with one another. Patience. Jesus is the supreme display of God's patience. Because God is slow to anger, He did not judge us immediately for our sins, but He sent His Son. And if God is so patient with us, in spite of our rebellion against Him, then I think we can be patient with one another. The Spirit helps us to be long-suffering, to bear with one another's sins and weaknesses, just as God has borne with us. Kindness and goodness, really these two qualities reveal God's generosity. Where do we see God most generous to us? It's by giving us His Son. And because we've received Christ, we can show the same generosity to others around us, the same kindness and goodness to others around us. You know, we can be welcoming to strangers who come into our midst. We don't just rely on the, the ushers or the welcome team to be welcoming, but all of us as God's people can be hospitable. Faithfulness. Jesus is the faithful one who has fulfilled all of God's promises. He's the one who reflects God's faithfulness by coming in the flesh. And because he's faithful, we can be faithful with one another. We can speak the truth in love to one another. We can point one another to the faithfulness of Christ. Gentleness. Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you come to me and you will find rest for your souls. You know, Jesus is not harsh towards us. He deals gently with us when we sin. And when others sin or when others sin against us, we can be gentle with them. We can seek to restore them in the spirit of love and gentleness. Finally, self-control. Jesus did not come to serve himself. He denied himself. He made himself nothing in order to serve others. And I think that's what self-control looks like. Self-control means to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Self-control means that we we, do, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for our King, who died and rose from the dead to save us. Now, we live for the King's people, you know, our brothers and sisters in Christ, whom we love and serve because we deny ourselves. That's what self-control looks like. So, GBC, what what has got one of us? Now, this is our last Sunday here before we move back to our building. Think about this. What what does God want of us? Does He want a new building? Does He want kind of successful ministries? Does He just want numbers in our gatherings? What does He really want of us? The fruit of the Spirit tells us that what God really wants is Christ likeness. God wants us to become more and more like His beloved Son, not just individually, but together, in our life together, in our relationships with one another. And the good news is that God has given us His Spirit so that we, by His Spirit's help, become more and more like Jesus. Now that's good news. That is the grace of God. And I pray that we as a people would rest in God's provision to to ask Him for help, to trust in His Spirit's work, to trust in His Spirit's power working in and through us to make us more like His Son. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your spirit. Father, we thank you that you've saved us and you've given us your spirit so that your spirit can work in our hearts to make us more and more like your son. And Father, we pray that you will help us to be a dependent people. Help us not to trust in our own efforts, help us not to trust in ourselves, but help us to come to you and to cry out to you for help because you are our father and we we are your children. So Father, we pray that you fill us by your spirit afresh, help us to live lives that are glorifying to you, lives that reflect more and more the beauty of Christ. We pray that the Spirit will work in us to form us into the image of your Son. We pray this in His name. Amen. Shall we
0: stand for the song of response?